Under the Helmet. You'll do your thing, all right? Don't be nervous, okay? The show that looks at long-term player value in fantasy football. It's the moment right here. We're going to have to decide what, what type of team we want to be. Building Dynasties each and every week. I don't even know your name. What's your name? Chad Parsons. I'm telling you, man, you're leading the league in hydration. I got a Dynasty team reaping rewards for the next decade. Katie Flower. You may beat me, but you will not outwork me. Tim Torch. There's only one winner, Chad. Find their written and premium audio content at uthdynasty.com. Playing it safe in Dynasty means you're going to lose. Stop talking about it, man. Let's get this going right now. Welcome to Under the Helmet. Look at some long-term player value in fantasy football. I'm your host, Chad Parsons. Got Katie Flower here. We continue our Dynasty flashback series looking at rookie drafts from previous years. And this year, this week, it was 2019. And I still remember us having a lot of Debbie conversations, Katie, about a player named Kyler Murray, who did not get drafted a ton in Debbie. And part of that was because he was a first-round pick in baseball. And then he goes, he has one great college season at quarterback. Uh, the height hurt around the world uh, that offseason, that draft season, when he was going through the draft process. Ultimately, he was our 101 in this 2019 class. So there were so many fun stories. And the fact that we started in 2013, it really challenges a lot of people's dynasty memories. But now especially these last few classes, 2019 this week for our discussion included, we know, we remember the decisions, we remember the stories, we remember the profiles and the players. And this is going to teach us lessons going forward about 2022, maybe even future classes as well. Absolutely. That was the point of the exercise. It's also, even myself and I was here at each of these drafts, you know, in the dynasty world, at the time, but I've learned so much just with the flashback myself, relearning memories or uh, revisiting memories, revisiting players and the whole thought process. It's been really good. And uh, this week, I actually got a bunch of UTH VIPs that um, have some comments and questions. So I'll try to mix them in where appropriate, but lead us through Katie in terms of our evaluation and um, analysis here of the skill positions. Sure. So first, I just want to start off by saying I got into Debbie in my second season of playing Dynasty, which would have been 2015. And I remember this class very well because it was one of the first freshman class where I had to draft Debbie. I fell in love with A.J. Brown right away. Um, I also like D.K. Metcalf, but there was a ton of wide receivers that through attrition never even made it. Amir Mitchell, or uh, yeah, Amir Mitchell, and just a whole bunch of different names that everybody had been watching, and hardly any of them made it all the way through college to, to even make it to the pros. And then some names, guys that you didn't expect. And I knew way back then that this class was not all overly strong, and it proved out to be that way. As we've mentioned before, the thing that makes a class particularly strong or weak is running backs and and quarterbacks. And if it's super flex, especially uh, the quarterbacks can make or break the class. We'll kick it off with the running backs. Like we have one first round pick, Josh Jacobs, a little bit of a surprise, older guy from Alabama, hardworking, had to wait his chance. Finally got a chance to be the starter for one year at Alabama. Then we had Miles Sanders, the only second round pick to Philadelphia, the good size out of Penn State, good size, decent speed. Uh, just those two were pretty much the no brainers. 
But then it went to the third round. We had Daryl Henderson, David Montgomery, Devin Singletary, Damian Harris, Alexander Madison. And then there was, you know, guys like Tony Pollard that was fourth round. We didn't know it at the time. He has ended up being a little bit fantasy relevant of late. But uh, one of the biggest casualties was we had Miles Gaskin was seventh round pick. He was somebody that a lot of Debbie people liked. Mike Weber went in the seventh round. Uh, I think Elijah Holifield was an undrafted free agent. There was just so many different guys that looked fairly good with their profiles coming in as freshmen that they never hit. And guys like Bryce Love in the fourth round, he was a big Debbie name for a long time. Justice Hill, just a lot of guys that never panned out. Yeah. And I remember in a Debbie draft getting Joshua Jacobs the year before. So so before his final season in college, that he was a bit player. And it really was a let's take an interesting profile, you know, a guy that certainly isn't one of the five stars that Alabama is used to, and took Josh Jacobs, you know, deep, deep in one of these combo drafts where you can draft Debbie all the way through. And uh, just took a shot. He ended up being obviously in contention for the 101, 102 in this particular class, being a first round pick. But he, even 12 months before, was not really on the radius of, oh, watch out for this guy, potential top 100 pick, not really a Devi discussion type player. Miles Sanders, however, five star guy, waited his time, uh, finally started to produce late uh, with no Sequan Barkley around um, in that Penn State pipeline. So it took him quite a while. Um, and I remember David Montgomery, um, I'm sure it still get passed, gets passed around Katie, but remember how, you know, he had the freakish athleticism or something of Sequan Barkley and the, yeah. you know, the power of Adrian Peterson and the, you know, so that still goes around and that was this class in 2019. So, um, yeah. And there's a number of, uh, of stories and lessons here, but I don't want to, you know, say, you know, do a, a giant soapbox before passing it back and forth here a few a few times that like you said the running back position really does make or break the class and this was one i just remember it was alexander madison over and over and over again try to get him in every single draft and i actually i mean one of the more fun recordings i ever did was like 30 minutes on how it was the most stressful 12 to 18 hours in some slow rookie draft because I tried to trade about 10 straight draft spots for Alexander Madison to get into that spot to get him and ended up falling to my spot at 305, which was way later than I ever drafted him uh, you know, on my own accord that year. But just I was all in on Madison, just like I was on James Conner. Obviously, with Madison, we haven't got um, as much uh, extreme clarity with starting opportunities uh, as James Conner, but Madison still has provided us starts uh, in recent years in that injury away and primary backup role, though. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as you mentioned, Josh Jacobs ended up at the 101 more often than not, although it was a coin flip sometimes with Nikhil Harry. Miles Sanders was pretty much right after Nikhil Harry at the 103, 104 range. So depending on which flavor you liked, David Montgomery or Miles Sanders, they were both right there at 3-4. And then there wasn't another running back until late first. I remember Damian Harris was getting drafted in the late first. Daryl Henderson in the early second. You know, people were pushing Devin Singletary, Buffalo. Could he handle the whole workload? He was being pushed up to the early to mid second range of rookie drafts. And these are non-super flex drafts. But 
as you mentioned, uh, there were some definite UTH guys like Alexander Madison, who you could get them late second, early third, sometimes even mid third all day, especially early in the process because he was buried behind Dalvin Cook. There was no way that he was going to be a starter. So why draft it? Yeah, I think uh, I remember the Daryl Henderson, like this was when Todd Gurley was, you know, not, not, on, on his last threads of, of being in the NFL. Obviously, in retrospect, we know that now. But Daryl Henderson was drafted, like you said, later first a lot of times. It's like assuming Todd Gurley died. And it was very preemptive of assuming Henderson, you know, who got some, I think, some positive spring reports, you know, or, or uh, OTA reports out of out of Rams camp and they just kind of ran with it. And Henderson was non-productive, non-factor in year one. And frankly, it took him till this past year to, to really carve. And that was with Cam Akers who got drafted over him. Uh, so it's not like that, that uh, honeymoon lasted for Henderson. He went from Gurley to, to Cam Akers and, uh, and that, and I will say a, a couple of things. I mean, David Montgomery, I, you know, that profile of a big back who can move and can catch, that's it. That's David Montgomery, you know, and the fact that he ended up being a value, pretty much producing, showing flashes to year one, but then having a big breakout and arguably uh, of all these guys, you know, the best season of any of them to date in their careers, David Montgomery in year two. So Joshua Jacobs broke out in year two uh, with, with a, his best season to date as well. But but Montgomery is really, if we are going to say oh, through three, th- three seasons and it's not uh, to say that the book is written on this class, but uh, in terms of career start, David Montgomery has the biggest peak at, at present. And I, I just think this is a class that going into it, it, it definitely didn't grade out. You know, the draft position, draft pedigree, the draft strength was not here in spades, pretty much at any position but tight end. We'll get to that. But, but running back, you know, this was a down year for sure after 2017, 2018. But I'll tell you, Katie, I mean, I think these results are are perfectly fine. I think a lot of people, you know, want five running back ones out of a class, but we're three years in. I think you could honestly say that we have, uh, you know, still still untapped potential from maybe a perfect storm for Miles Sanders or Damian Harris, uh, even Daryl Henderson or Singletary, who had his best season a year ago. Uh, Madison hasn't really been a starter, Pollard either. And I just think this is an underrated class because going in, not a lot of fanfare. And I would say coming out, there wasn't a lot of fanfare, but we've seen some startable seasons out of five, six, seven running backs. And I think there's others that haven't been there that have the potential to do so. And, and yet I think 2019 is going to be remembered as that, ah, you know, Josh Jacobs, thank God he was there because the class stunk at running back. And I, I really don't think that's the case. When you've got two running backs in the first round of a rookie draft, that's pretty good sign that they're that yeah, you may have some backup players, you may have some spot starts here and there, but you don't have a startable running back, you know, that that you can rely on. And even even Josh Jacobs and Miles Sanders have had their moments. Um, well, sorry, David Montgomery was also the third one, but people were pushing Daryl Henderson up the board, Damian Harris up the board, and even Justice Hill because uh, of his role in Baltimore there. Oh, people yeah. were being pushed up the draft boards because running back is such a typically more people like to get the running backs out of the rookie draft instead of wide receivers. Yeah. 
Um, one thing I do remember is, and, and thankfully Jordan and I uh, got a good quality share. I think it was in the fourth round of a of a deep two quarterback, two tight end draft. The uh, Tony Pollard, you know, the fact that Mike Weber fell in the draft, almost fell out of the draft. And, and I'll say that is definitely one of my lessons learned is that Pollard and Weber go to the same depth chart. Pollard firmly in the top 150, actually 128 overall. Weber, again, outside the top 200. This is not like one round difference. This is a significant difference in what the NFL at large, in addition to what Dallas thinks about these two backs. And yet I was there stubbornly promoting, you know, I took Mike Weber a ton in the fourth round of rookie drafts. And I don't know, I don't even know, Kitty, did he make the 53? I, I think he wasn't even, well, he wasn't even on the practice squad, maybe. So like it was very apparent early that. I mean, Pollard, a fourth rounder, he's going to make the team. It's just going to be, is he going to be running like two or three? Um, but Weber, I mean, so, and Weber did not have a receiving profile, 211 pounds. Pollard was basically the same size at 210. And he had the highest athleticism score of any running back drafted in this class. So that was a profile. And Dallas, I mean, that should have made you sit up and say, Tony Pollard with a big time receiving score, big time receiving profile, pay attention to this. And I, I would imagine if I would were to go back in time and be able to tell myself that I would have a ton of Tony Pollard shares because, I mean, the fact that, oh, draft Benny Snell, draft Justice Hill, Bryce Love, all this stuff. And it's like, but Tony Pollard had the best athleticism for his size of the class. And he went to a block situation. It was very Alexander Madison-like. And yet, you know, through this point in their career, both of them have been high-end elite injury away options, and both of them were highly affordable prices, especially Pollard. Yeah, and the other thing is they had just drafted Bo Scarborough the year before, so they had Ezekiel Elliott, Bo Scarborough, Mike Weber, and Tony Pollard. So that that running back competition, and as you mentioned, Mike Weber was out very early. Let me ask you this. Is Tony Pollard through this point in his career? I mean, is he, is he, is he a success or more of a, 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 a tease of what he could be because he really hasn't had clarified starts. So he's still sort of a incomplete grade. Like we don't really know, is he going to end up being a predictable NFL starter at some point in his career? And I, we can say the same thing about Alexander Madison, but at least we've had some clarified starts with him. Yeah. Uh, the jury's still out. We don't know. I mean, because it really what's going to happen is will Tony Pollard get a big time contract after his time, you know, after his rookie contract, if he doesn't see significant starting opportunities before that, then he's going to be an unknown. And I remember, who was it? Uh, Toby Gerhardt is probably the most recent example, right? Or maybe one of the most glaring example of pure backup, pure backup behind Adrian Peterson. And then Jacksonville paid him. And we found out that Toby Gerhardt wasn't that good, but that that's the first one that really the free agent market ponied up for a guy that the, the, you know, just the optics of how many times did you actually get a full workhorse type role uh, in during a rookie contract? And the answer was basically zero. Any other running backs that you want to mention? Uh, no, I mean, I think, I think, it, you know, Damien Harris being, you know, it took him a couple of years to really kind of get rolling this past year. We saw what he could do and, you know, but James White's going to be back. Uh, Singletary, I've always thought 
while it's been very tempered so far, I've always thought he's a really good player, better NFL player probably than he's been so far and maybe will be ever in terms of fantasy wise. I think he has some similarities to LaShawn McCoy, even though obviously the production has been markedly different on the fantasy box score there. Um, And I just think in general, again, three years does not a career make a career arc has certainly been started and can be predicted to the future. And we keep recalibrating here. But um, I think that, you know, this past year we had four of these guys in the top 24 of adjusted points per game. Singletary was just outside that. Um, I just think, uh, again, I think the depth is, is here. And I wonder about guys like Miles Sanders and, uh, you know, I mentioned some of those back at current backup running backs. Are they going to have a mid-career spike or or flourish where just maybe they're not in the right environment for three, four seasons during their rookie contract? Wide receiver wise, uh, there was a mixed bag here. And I remember all the hype there. There were all kinds of hype stories here. We had Marquise Brown and Nikhil Harry, both first round picks late in the first and then Depot Samuel, he was hurt out of South Carolina, right? He yeah. didn't even... Uh, yeah, he had durability issues, yeah. He was banged up and he didn't even compete at the combine, right? Yeah. Okay. So Debo Samuel went second round to San Francisco, even with all that. He, injuries, banged up all the time and no combine. He still went second round, which might should have been a, a red flag and early, in, and early, early second round exactly early second round and then aj brown my man second round 51st overall Mikol hardman there was a lot of buzz about him at times jj ortega whiteside second round to the eagles again big dude that everybody was buzzing about paris campbell had a lot of buzz second round pick to indianapolis andy isabella uh, with the kyler murray hookup we don't know yet we haven't talked about quarterbacks but uh, Andy Isabella was a buzz name. DK Metcalf, because, uh, you know, he felt the late second to Seattle. There were times where all these guys in rookie drafts could have been either a bargain or a high price to pay for a bust. Yeah. And then we had guys like Terry McLaurin in the third round, Jalen Hurd, who converted to wide receiver and, uh, talk about someone that hasn't been durable. Miles Boykin was another name at Baltimore and big dude. A lot of people were buzzing about him. Hakeem Butler, before the draft even started, there was a lot of people that drafted him at 105 in rookie drafts before the NFL draft. But then once the NFL took him, Arizona took him in the fourth round, he fell, but there were still people clinging to hope. This was also the uh, Hunter Renfro class, fifth round pick. And Kelvin Harmon, he was a Debbie name. He slid all the way to the sixth round. So Riley Ridley was another buzz name in the fourth round. Everybody thought because Calvin Ridley, that he would automatically be this wonderful wide receiver in the NFL so take it away. Yeah. Um, this was another down class. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, teaser 2020 uh, through 2022, markedly better uh, projected for this class, of course. Um, but, but yeah, this continued this wound. We never quite got back to the 2014, 2015 draft class strength at wide receiver um, in 16 through 19. So um, th- this was basically four years in a row. And this is when you know you started to have these older wide receivers that stayed high in in startup drafts because you had not a great influx coming in and the perception of these these rookie classes 
um, during this span of time. Um, yeah, we did have some 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 comments and questions from the the UTH uh, VIPs here, and uh, yeah, Mar- Marquise Brown just being the the small size he was going as the first wide receiver off the board, no wide receiver till twenty five. Um, this is this is open ended, Katie. But uh, Sid asks, how did we miss so bad on Nikhil Harry? <laughs> Well, so 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 I'm a data head, and you're a you're a Patriots uh, a Patriots in depth follower. So I mean, we are very close to the situation on this. Yeah, I mean, he was a big guy. the The question is, how did he win in college? He won with contested catches, big, physical, strong dude. He had decent speed. You had him. I don't remember exactly, uh, but he was close to twenty twenty one. I think miles an hour. Yep. He just. Yeah. I don't know if it's his head or what, but the Patriots have not been that good at drafting wide receiver. And I remember the show and Jordan was like, okay, I'm out on Nikhil Harry completely because he just got drafted by the Patriots in the first round. And I was excited. I was like, well, I think he's going to reverse the curse because here's this guy, big, strong, physical dripping with athleticism. But I, I think it's his head that blocks him and those are the intangibles that you just cannot tell well it, cer- well, it certainly process. wasn't the testing i mean again he tested well he was 228 pounds i will say this that you uh, you got to be a little careful because when you start getting supersized and he certainly had a 29 bmi and not just a 29 bmi i mean Debo samuel was thick and aj brown is very rare because he was also you know 225 plus pounds and that's not super common at wide receiver especially for a guy that could move so we had more than you know more than two of those we had dk metcalf as well in this class so i mean there were a lot of quote unquote prototypical wide receivers where you know it gets us all excited right i mean we get a guy that's basically running back type size and thickness and all this and we're saying wow they can get in space just just uh handle these defensive backs and uh, and for Nikhil harry i mean there were again he had punt return touchdowns in college and again tested well uh, the production score was there he was 21 years old and I'll say it. I mean, I said this in a in, in a different way when I was talking about Devonte Adams. Of you know, if he busts or if he's seen his best, and it was when that year where he had the ankle injury and he didn't uh, break out, and everyone thought he was supposed to. And so, uh, Nikhil Harry again, if he flames out, and basically he's on that high probability threshold right now, that he will be one of the biggest busts in all of of dynasty and, and kind of metric history. Because he was right there, 101, 102 in rookie drafts. That hurts. If yeah. you drafted him over Josh Jacobs, that hurts. If you drafted him even over, you know, DK Metcalf, AJ Brown, David Montgomery, Miles Sanders, pretty much anybody, then it sucks. It sucks. And that's a bust and that's a whiff and that's a loss of value with your pick. And I do remember that there was one I just did not want to draft Nikhil Harry at 102. I bailed on the pick. It, this was a year that you really had to work to trade down out of 101, 102, high up in round one to yep. get a future first, get something else. I remember I traded to like, I traded 102 for a starting tight end, like 111, and then like a first the following year. And because it was moving off of Nikhil Harry, that it worked out great. You know, obviously, because you're moving off of a nickel and almost anything is going to be worth more than a nickel. So, so for Harry, I just view this as a big, a big glaring, metric miss and this is what happens the other thing i would ask though is you know why 32 overall like like this is not 
uh, Jamar Chase of going in the top five. So I think this is a reminder that yes, this is an outlier. He he whiffed, and plenty of guys with his profile going that high in the draft would would not whiff, especially to the degree that, degree that he has. But the one thing I would say is this shows you that wide receivers, when you get to the later first round and then on into day two and beyond, they are high variance. And it includes outcomes like this, where they might average three, four, five points per game. And through three years, that's his peak. That yeah. is Nikhil's hairy peak. So that is within the range of outcomes for all of these wide receivers. Is that Would that be very surprising if they were a top 5, 10, even 15 pick in the first round? Yes. But he went 32. Let's, every single team, okay, uh, 90-something percent of the teams in the NFL had a chance on Nikhil Harry and said, no thanks. No thanks, at least once. So that means you're not bulletproof. You're not going up high in the draft. So uh, again, to say that... It, should his probabilities again were better, but were they egregiously so over Debo Samuel and AJ Brown and you know some of these earlier round two guys? No. So again, you snuck into to the first round. Congratulations. But it still means you need to become. I mean, the expectation essentially is a wide receiver. You got to be an alpha receiver, and if you're not, uh, to some degree, if you're going 101, 102, 103, you're going to be a disappointment. If that's not the outcome, Corey Davis hasn't really done that. So yeah, he was a disappointment as well. And he went a lot higher in the draft, but Akil Harry, I just say, again, you kind of, I mean, 32 overall, we're, we might be able to get that wide receiver in this draft class at what? 106, 107, 110, who knows? So the, the part of the problem was that Harry, when it going 101, 102 makes it feel a heck of a lot worse. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the Patriots needed an alpha wide receiver there. I mean, they're, they whiff just as much as all of the dynasty owners as well. I mean, it's a sexy profile. And that's the thing about these rookie picks. There is no guarantee. And you can't always tell which guy is going to be the better pro. Well, like you said, what if you you know you kind of said it's in his head? Well, if the Patriots aren't great at developing young and incoming wide receivers, Nikhil Harry comes in there, and if he's got some sort of limitation about you know whether it's the learning process or it's just about working or just the scheme or anything, and you put those two factors together, I mean, it's not going to work, right? I mean, so if he were to go to uh, like a quote unquote easy environment or like hey. We're going to make it like Duplo blocks for you. We're going to see what you do well and we're going to start you there and you know and not have you try to learn 3 4 5 things that you didn't do in college and that's you know we're trying kind of drafting based on potential and what you can do well. And so, you know, who knows? Leo you know, landing spot is a factor there. Um we had another comment from Steven that uh, he said DK Metcalf, you know, that it, it goes back to things about speed trumping other factors, Marquise Brown with his utility as well being speed, right? So, I I mean, DK Metcalf, Marquise Brown, uh, others in this class, McCall Hardman obviously did not work out, but he references just that speed element, obviously with DK Metcalf being far more freaky for his size. It was far more freaky for his size, but guys like John Ross, I mean, speed alone is not the only thing. And you can have good football speed. Look at Cooper Cup. Look at, you know, Jerry Rice. I mean, there's a whole litany of guys 
that didn't have blazing speed that were very successful wide receivers. So there's not one set. Right. Type. I, I would say if you, if you're fast and you didn't produce a ton in college, I would ask why, because speed kills in the NFL, but it kills even more in high school and college. If you're right. fast, I mean, you can do, I mean, the highlight reel on these guys can be so pronounced and to be fair, DK Metcalf and Marquise Brown, both, probably should have produced a little more in college. Now, DK Metcalf sharing uh, the same passing game with AJ Brown, who outproduced him in terms of the model and Marquise Brown on Oklahoma. So they had a lot of weapons. You know, they are a free flowing offense there uh, at Oklahoma, especially when Marquise Brown was there. So um, yeah. And, and, you know, Debo Samuel was another one older, didn't produce as much. And you know what, if we're evaluating him as a pure wide receiver, I mean, part of it is, you know, you look at uh, his his huge peak season this past year. I mean, part of it was the Cordero Patterson factor, right? He's playing running back. He's getting touches. He's getting rushing scores in addition to him playing his best ball through three years as a receiver. But I would just highlight that he was 12 point per game guy in his first couple of years. This giant monster season it was a Franken position kind of created for Debo Samuel. Look at what he's doing beyond the scope of traditional wide receiver is, has been his career peak so far. I'm very intrigued to see where he goes in terms of in future years. Well, and sneak peek on the 22 class that kind of reminds me of Traylon Burks. He's just bigger, stronger, and, you know, and there's talk it, that they can use him like Debo Samuel or things like that, but exactly. is, he, is so, he going to find a team that's the big Kyle question. Shanahan that says I'll be creative or again, the Cordero Patterson, let's, let's figure out the skeleton key to what makes you tick in your most productive state. Exactly. Um, we had one more too. Uh, Steven said, should probably talk about Deontay Johnson, you know, coming from the ether, basically that's a good word. I use that all the time uh, to, to end up dominating. And, and yeah, Deontay Johnson was one that I remember him being a, film versus metrics kind of thing. He went day three, sorry, he went round three at 66 overall. And the, the Steelers already had a good wide receiver core at that time. And they were hitting on, he's part of that track record of hitting on day two wide receivers. Uh, and Deontay Johnson was on the thinner side. You know, he ran four fives for his weight, which wasn't very good. He was okay, productive out of Toledo. But Again, just another wide receiver for the Pittsburgh Steelers making it work. And he's one that, I mean, again, not a good metric profile and certainly an outlier when you consider it's not that he went in the top 30 or 40 and he didn't have a great profile. And yet right away, 10 points per game year one, the last two years, he's pretty much been in lineups uh, almost every week uh, when you look at start rate, when, when you look at how he's produced. Yeah, there's some smaller school guys like him that'll fall through the cracks. And then you got guys like Terry McLaurin out of Ohio State. Uh, I remember scooping him up a ton in the early third, mid third, late third, depending on the time of year. And the only problem that I have is once he hit, I traded him pretty much everywhere that I had scooped him up. And so that's the thing about dynasty is when somebody is such a late round rookie pick, a lot of times the tendency is to try to flip them for something a little bit more stable with a little bit more draft capital yeah. with a little bit more, hopefully staying power, but McLaurin's done a fairly good job 
it's as a dynasty. I mean, his boom bust profile, usually they boom and then, you know, Martavis Bryant like or some of these others, they end up, you know, crashing back down to earth. And right. Tyreek Tyreek Hill was boom bust, but again, he was a special case. And you know what? He's with Patrick freaking Mahomes. So we can, and he's the cheetah, and a lot of people consider him the fastest, you know, scariest offensive weapon in the NFL. So that's a little bit of a rare case. And, but Terry McLaurin, and I remember part of this was, I mean, Paris Campbell on the same Ohio State offense drafted uh, around ahead of him. And Ohio State just could throw the, you know, it was the uh, Dwayne Haskins effect. I mean, they had three, four, five guys. It wasn't even fair. They had speed to burn on that offense and pretty much, oh yeah, you're just going to get wide open. You're going to be able to produce, but they're going to spread the ball around. So McLaurin, when you look at boom bust and his level of athleticism, but he's been three years in a row productive and you know the number one wide receiver for his team. And right away, that, that was the case in year one. What I mean, what a story from you know buried in the draft, relatively speaking, and a boom bust profile to start and yet consummate worker and coming in at 23 years old and three years in a row, he's on a, a great track and we'll see where it goes. But, but yeah, he hasn't really hit a giant ceiling yet. And I think that's kind of, kind of wearing on dynasty owners by now, just because they haven't seen some big peak like a DK Metcalf or Deontay Johnson or AJ Brown or Debo Samuel from this class. So he hasn't hit a peak like those guys in a season, but certainly a guy that has ward, warded off the guy can't play boom bust and the bust is coming sort of moniker. And kind of like a couple years, a couple seasons prior when we had uh, ESB uh, Equinemius St. Brown being drafted in the same draft class as Marquez Valdez Scantling, people were taking ESB just because they'd known him so long in Debbie, they were taking him over Marquez Valdez Scantling in rookie drafts. Same thing with Kelvin Harmon, who was drafted by Washington in round six. People were taking him over Terry McLaurin, even though he was drafted three rounds earlier by the Washington, you know, then they were the Redskins. So that's another lesson learned is if a team like Green Bay or Washington, anybody really takes two of the same position in the same class that doesn't the guy that they take first they like better than the guy they take second <laughs> yeah they do and the interesting thing is you know i was looking here and and tracking sort of the peak season factor you have uh uh, uh marquise brown wide receiver one off the board seventh the seventh highest peak season of of this class and that's even behind hunter renfro who we haven't mentioned uh, in addition to a lot of the guys we have in the first two, three rounds of this draft. But Marquise Brown, even though uh, he had his best season yet um, in this past season, man, he is one that they've drafted over, you know, in terms of Rashad Bateman in recent. They also drafted two other day two guys. It was Devin uh, Duvernay plus, I can't think of the other one. James offhand. Prochet. Yeah, James, well, James Prochet. They also had um, uh, Tyler uh, no, Tylen Wallace, you know, this past year, yeah. is like a fourth rounder. So they Baltimore has gone back to the well so many times at, at wide receiver. And then they have Mark Andrews as well. But Marquise Brown, when you look within this class and how much value there has been on day two, that Marquise Brown just fading, even though he did technically break out and have his best year this past year, he certainly is one that I wouldn't be surprised if he kind of fades back from that wide receiver 2025 kind of zone this past year. 
because I just don't think, you know, he's a very specified taste. I just don't think he's ever going to really tilt coverage and be that number one wide receiver. Certainly in Baltimore, he's got a couple more years with that fifth year option. And uh, Mark Andrews isn't going anywhere. Not a lot of good optics there for Marquise Brown, even coming off that year. Yeah. And one more thing that I'd like to add, if you draft before the NFL draft in rookie drafts or in a startup, you're drafting rookies instead of just the placeholder picks, that is the most dangerous time because you're probably going off the hype of their college seasons, their hype from their Devi. And this class pretty much flipped upside down. Uh, if you were drafting Miles Boykin, Hakeem Butler, Kelvin Harmon, uh, just a, a wide array of names that ended up going late, late. And uh, man, it can hurt you. You can also get some great surprises. You can get some guys like, uh, I got Antonio Gibson in a sec late second round of a 14 teamer. So you can get gems too. You just have to be just weigh the risk. Yep. Uh, so tight end was the position that this actually was a banner year. Uh, this yes. was by my measures, uh, looking at the top hundred uh, draft picks and their metric profiles and draft position, all of that. This was the strongest tight end class uh, since I started tracking it in 2007. So this was your chance and with Hawkinson and Fanton round one. Yeah, two first rounders. TJ Hawkinson went eighth overall. Noah Fant, 20th overall. A lot of people like Irv Smith. And he's done fairly well, except with the injuries. Drew Sample, another second round pick. Josh Oliver, Jay Sternberger, Kahali Warring, and Dawson Knox were all third rounders. Then there were some deeper names like Foster Moreau, fourth round, went to Oakland, buried a little bit behind Darren Waller, but he's had some flashes here and there. I know UTH likes Zach Gentry, his metric profile, more than some of the other late round guys. Uh, but this was in a two tight end league or a tight end premium, the time to pick up one or two of those top studs. Yeah. And one of the questions I remember from the, from the UTH uh, following was, about, you know, does Hawkinson and Fant, the fact that they haven't really got all the way home, it's only been three years, I would add that, but um, that they haven't gotten all the way home for some big pronounced peak, you know, does that make you, does this class, you know, is one of the talking points to make you rethink taking tight ends in a one tight end, especially early uh, of saying, eh, it's just not worth taking the rookie tight ends in the rookie draft itself, unless the format hits you over the head and saying you basically have to because they aren't available really after that point uh, many times. And and with Hawkinson and Fant, you know, neither one, like I said, has gotten all the way home to challenge that elite top end of the position that can lap everybody else in your league. And we really haven't got that yet from Hawkinson or Fant, even though we've had some startable production certainly in year two and year three for them. And and we have had uh, good flashes to say that they're on the right track and they are first rounders. Yep. Uh, I agree. It's always the question mark. It depends on how deep the rest of the class is in a class like this, where TJ Hawkinson was going around 10th overall in a non, just a start one tight end. That's not super expensive compared to the JJ Ortega Whiteside, Michael Hardman, Daryl Henderson that are all in that same range. 
But then again, you got guys like Marquise Brown and Debo Samuel that you could have had instead. But was Debo Samuel really right out of the gate? I mean, it's really taken him a couple years to get healthy and to really finally start to put pieces together. So wide receivers and tight ends will take time to acclimate to the NFL. And it really depends on the strength of the class. If there's no other, like there weren't a ton of good running backs in this range, I'm fine taking a TJ. I would say when you have it that different of, you know, day two wide receivers and, you know, the running back, you know, in that spot, you're talking maybe late day two, but really day three, then I mean, first round tight end, yeah, you're you're investing in the future. You're investing in a position that may not be highly valued unless you get all the way home. But at least Hawkinson has been in the top six a couple times, Fant in the top twelve a couple times. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're we're lacking that, you know, all the way up to tight end two, and you know, all, all of a sudden you're you're at, you're higher by five points per game over half of your league mates and who they are starting. We haven't got there. But I would also argue, even for first rounders tight end takes a while. So just have patience to pretend like Hawkinson and Fant have hit their career peak yet it is not really the case, but you have to know They're that going in with tight ends. You have to know with tight ends that you are basically saying, and, and I, I've been starting to do the positional value route in, in my rookie big board, just because I know they're not going to carry a lot of, uh, of cachet in the trade market. And unless, you know, unless they get into the top four, five, six, there's not going to be a ton of value. So you have to know that going in that I'm making an investment for the future. I'm going to be patient because otherwise, yeah, I mean, if you're not going to be patient, if the shallow, if it's more shallow rosters, then yes, you probably should avoid it, trade for veterans, uh, or just fix the position or address the position a different way that is not drafting a rookie incoming because you're going to have a lot of sunken cost and sunken time with that roster spot. A couple other points I remember about the tight end position is, you know, Irv Smith not being that productive, but being young and coming out of Alabama, he was supposed to be a breakout guy in 2021. So that was year three for him. And it, he, he was on a track of moving up and he had a lot of upward mobility in the dynasty marketplace. So, so Irv Smith is more of an incomplete grade. We don't know how 2021 would have turned out for him. Drew Sample having the, the pedigree, but he was non-productive in college, even though he was a decent athlete. Uh, Josh Oliver, he had some durability issues, Kahale wearing as well, durability issues, Sternberger. And so one of the last points I would make about the tight end position is just day two, you got to be careful because the, it's a slow moving position, but this class got absolutely riddled by bad outcomes, at least in the first two, three years of almost non-producers at the position. Oliver, Sternberger, Waring, uh, Dawson Knox had some moments, but I mean, one question I have is how many times did Dawson Knox change hands in a typical you know, 22 to 28 man roster with no tight end frills? before he had his breakout in year three with you know strong touchdowns, being a fantasy starter regularly this past season. And I would argue in, in those two plus years, 24 plus months, he probably changed hands two, three times of, 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 of either being dropped or added into deals, or there was a decent game, then three bad games and, you know, and, and changing hands during the season like that. So to me, it's just a cautionary tale that, uh, and a lot of what I've researched is 
day two or round two is not all the same. You really got to be in the top 45, maybe 50 at the most. Uh, late round two and beyond, you that's a whole different kind of scope. It's sort of like uh, quarterbacks that in the top 16 is different than later first round. And I think early on day two is different than later on day two from what, what NFL teams expect, but also from what we should expect and that patience factor, as I mentioned. It, it's just really tough stuff there. Yes, yes. And then quarterbacks. This was terrible, terrible class for quarterbacks. We knew that we had Kyler Murray that was more than likely going to be first overall, and he was. Daniel Jones, a little bit of a surprise coming out of Duke. There was he started, he was not in Debbie. He was one of those quarterbacks that would fall through the cracks. And he did six overall to the Giants. Dwayne Haskins was a reach for the Washington Redskins at 15th overall. And then Drew Locke in the second round was the only second round. Will Greer, third round, only one third round NFL, two in the fourth. People thought Jarrett Stidham being drafted in the fourth round was a Tom Brady, uh, you know, going to take over (laughs) when Tom Brady was gone. Everybody that is drafted by the Patriots for the last eight years has been the heir to the throne. Uh, So just a lot of total overall weakness, three first rounders and in super flex, Kyler Murray was going Daniel Jones was usually a pretty good value in a late first of super flex drafts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kyler Murray. And, and again, we, we kind of figure it out during the draft process. He's in on football going, going number one overall. We'll do that to you. And he had the mobility in spades, the potential to be a game changer as a runner. And he's turned out exactly like that. You know, he had magic, the, the, the one big magical year for Oklahoma passing as well, but his profile coming in was that of a potentially dominant and game wrecking runner. And he really has gotten through. I, my, my go-to gotten through as a, as a runner, because my go-to phrase has been, he's been an NFL average passing starting quarterback. And yet you add on what he's done as a runner. And that is, you know, three seasons in a row now in the top 15, a couple in the top 10 and a peak season around QB five in adjusted points per game. So Kyler Murray to me, there's a divide. I still have some questions on him, but the going the 101 in Superflex drafts, I mean, it was a relatively easy choice in this draft because the other quarterbacks were not really competitive with Murray in, in those dynasty drafting environments. And then you had, uh, again, the premium on Murray compared to Josh Jacobs could have been, you know, in the top two, three, four, Nikhil Harry, and then it goes from there. But, uh, but Murray has actually produced easily the best of the position and I, I, you know, other than Gardner Minshew, who, who was such a revelation from day three, such an outlier outcome, historically speaking, the rest of these quarterbacks have been drastic disappointments where they showed maybe a little bit of promise in year one. And then they all pretty much took a, a U-turn and went directly backwards after that. Yeah. And you know, it, it stinks when you know that it's a weak class, people trying to push people uh, up the board. It, yeah. on, and it, it just makes it really tough, but it also makes your rookie drafts like the Wild West. Uh, yes, there is some consensus, but there's a, a range of picks between four and 10 that could have been any particular sequence. My final thoughts on this class, I, you know, we've mentioned many times, if you don't, 
if, if your guy ADP wise, ADP is peer pressure. We've said that before. <laughs> and that's basically group think. Everybody thinks that AJ Brown should go at the 110 or the 112. And that was about where his ADP was at the time. And I had the, the 105 or 106. And I wanted to trade back and get a little bit of extra value. I thought it was a little too soon to take AJ Brown. So I, I didn't want to do that, I thought, okay, well, I can trade back, you know, to the 110 and I can still get him or 109. I can't remember, but it was, I think it was 109. I traded back to the 109. I got a very insignificant piece to go with it. And then AJ Brown was taken at 108, the pick before me. And I hated myself every day since. And so in this class where it seems like there's a lot of depth, if you like a guy and ADP says, uh, wait four or five spots. Take your guy if that's your guy. Yeah, I have I have some same stories. I can't remember if it was centric to 2019, but yeah, that that'll be my last point as well. Because I remember there were uh, some classes where I didn't take the bait. Um, I remember AJ Dillon. You know that class was one of them where oh, you know his ADP, you know, is still a little bit off, and you know maybe oh, and David Johnson as well. I remember I I notably had a draft where. I couldn't believe at 112, I was taking David Johnson, but it was like, uh, I had some offer to trade down two, three spots, but you know what? I bet I would have missed. Just like you, you mentioned with AJ Brown, that sometimes moving down one spot is too many for, for your guy. And we always say, if you have one guy on the board that you want, and you know it's not like he's a round and a half away, don't get cute because you're probably not going to get much trading down. This whole like, oh, I'm going to move up from 306 to 302, or I'm going to get a future third, or I'm going to get some low-end player that I might end up cutting in two, three months. Uh, that's not worth moving off your guy and a chance at missing a target player for you. So target players mean you're basically just globally targeting them. And yes, there's a generally prescribed round or, or zone in the draft to take them. But the whole getting cute factor, I mean, to be honest, I mean, that is someone who's going to be an ADP, uh, you know, watcher and aficionado of like, oh, well, look at the great value, quote unquote value I got. It's hard enough to hit on the hit on players. So when you have a feel on a player, if that's David Johnson or James Conner or AJ Brown or, you know, insert player in 2022 and Again, I'm not saying if a guy's ADP is 305 to take him at 201, but we know what we're talking about. When you when you get to the zone and you're like, I'm being I'm gonna be aggressive. I have one pick in this range and I'm gonna get my guy, and you pass. You try to trade down two picks, five picks, half a round, because oh, I'll get better value. But you're gonna draft your ultimate plan. Here's what I don't like. If your ultimate plan is to draft the same guy in this getting cute scenario. I think it's a big mistake because even if you do it successfully a couple times in certain drafts, if you miss one time, you're going to feel so dirty. Like you rubbed it all over your face. And you're like, what did I do? This is not dynasty. Dynasty is about having the team you like. And it's just, maybe it's me getting older. Maybe it's me for you know the clarity of draft planning sake. But when you got three, four or five target players, it feels so good when you go through your drafts and you'll look at the end and you're like, I have 60% of my drafts. I got this player, you know, 48%. I got this guy, you know, and it's like, so this whole idea at 203, like, let's mix it up and have five, six, seven players you end up taking in that zone. No, if you like one or two of them a ton and two or three of them kind of okay, those are your backup plans. 
take the guys you love. And if you love two of them, I kind of get split in it a little bit. But I mean, man, the getting cute thing, I've had some times where I haven't taken the bait and I'm, I'm so happy I didn't. And I've had some times I did take the bait and you're just sweating the whole time. And for what? For what? A future marginal rookie pick upgrade or player throw in and you're, you're just like, ha ha, you know, I'm, I'm printing money. You're printing pennies. The, you might lose a dollar every once in a while in some of these. And at most every time you're, you're printing pennies. So that would be my biggest point is just, man, like you do this whole thing for, you watch a player during their college career, you do the whole draft process, you get all the way to being on the clock and you're like, eh, pass, pass. Let me get a little better value. It's get. I think it's greedy, Katie. I, I really think that's the final watchword I would put on it is, is we are like, if you do that scenario, you're being greedy. You're saying, I want AJ Brown or David Johnson or whoever it is. Plus is what you're saying. Just at this pick, having the opportunity, having a strong feeling about a player. It's not enough. I want more. I need more than just the player straight up. I need extra, extra. Yeah. And, and it's different if it's a tier of guys, if you've got three guys or four guys and you're going to move back three or four spots, that's completely different. But if you've got a target player and you're within that zone, that's what we're trying to say. And I just want to make sure that that's uh, that distinction is noted because AJ Brown was it for me right there. And I really should have just taken valuable it. lesson. I mean, yep. like you said, the fact that you remember three years later is enough to stick with, stick in your craw, and and probably it'll prevent you ten times over from doing it in that fashion again, which is awesome. Uh, and so one time actually can actually be a net positive over the next three, five, ten years, whatever it is. So Katie Flower, between episodes, thanks so much for putting this together. As always, we're six, seven draft classes in. We've got a couple more in retrospective to go here. You can follow her on Twitter between episodes at FF underscore Skylar 399. I am at Chad Parsons NFL 2020. Big class up next in in the ordering for next week's show. Reminder, uh, no ads, but if you want to support the show, become a general manager plus subscriber at uthdynasty.com. The draft guide is already in pre-order status. Katie helps put that together on the, the closing stages there. But uh, I am I put it together here in late March. Everything you need from a draft plan, all the data, all the positional, a lot of the historical information you're hearing in a show like this, you hear it about the current class. Where does it stand draft strength-wise? What are some of the hot spots, cold spots, profiles you need to know? And everything you need, a concise document, about 35, 40 pages, and uh, get you ready, comparable prospect matrix. Um, And again, can't speak enough to the value it has to get you ready pre-draft and then obviously you get a pro post-draft update. So you can find that at uthdynasty.com. I think it's pinned to my Twitter as well. So for Katie, myself, Chad, until next time, never settle, refuse to be average, and keep building those dynasties. <laughs>